the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park and 910 WTWD Plant City. It's time for Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Note this. Our Lord's disciples come and ask him a question. Why are you teaching the masses of unbelievers in parables when they really can't understand what you're talking about? And in Christ's answer, he he specifically referred to these parables as the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're glad you have joined the class. Today, we begin a new series of studies taken from Matthew chapter 13. We'll be looking at Christ's teaching about the mysteries of the kingdom and why he began using parables to teach his disciples. At the end of our class today, I'll tell you about a great book offer from Verse by Verse. I'll also give you all the information on how you can listen again to today's study and many more, free for the downloading. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and have your notebook and pencil handy to take notes. Now, here's Pastor Steve. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 13, which is a new chapter for us in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. But not only is it a new, a brand new chapter for us to study, but there is also starting in this chapter a brand new emphasis in Christ's teaching ministry, something we have not seen before. Because in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 3, Matthew tells us, that Jesus began a different technique, a different method of teaching, rather than teaching in a straightforward, open manner that was easy for everybody to understand, Matthew tells us now that Jesus began to speak in parables. Notice verse 3, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, and then he went on to give the first parable. Now, this is the first time, as we've said, that we've encountered any parables in the Gospel of Matthew. And yet there are seven of them in this one chapter, which makes it very interesting and certainly ought to alert us to the fact that they are here by divine design and there is a strategy that Matthew has in placing so many in one chapter. So it is important at the start of our study of this magnificent chapter that we first understand the basic concept of of a parable. What is a parable? Well, the particular Greek word that is translated parable literally means to place something alongside of something else. It is actually a compound word that when you put together, it means to place or to throw something along of something else. It's actually a word of comparison. A a parable illustrates something by comparing it to something else. That's exactly what the parables of Matthew 13 are about. They are actually stories taken from everyday life situations that are placed alongside of moral or spiritual truths for the purpose 
of teaching. That's what a parable is. In other words, a parable is an earthly story that is intended to communicate a spiritual or a heavenly truth. Or very simply put, we could say that a parable teaches a spiritual lesson by using a story just taken from ordinary, common day life situations. Now, parables, as Jesus used them, should not be confused with other literary forms, such as fables or allegories, because they're very different. The late James Boyce, writing in his commentary about parables and how they differ from fables and allegories, said this, parables differ from fables in that a fable is not a real situation. An example of a fable is any of Aesop's stories in which animals talk. In those stories, the animals are simply people in disguise. Parables also differ from allegory, since in an allegory, each or nearly each detail has meaning. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia are essentially allegories. In the parables of Jesus, not every detail has meaning. It's important to understand. Indeed, he writes, to try to force meaning into each detail can produce strange and even false doctrines. Parables are merely real-life stories from which one or possibly a few basic truths are drawn. Now, it's helpful to understand that though Jesus often taught in parables, it's estimated that one-third of his teaching actually was in parabolic form, he did not invent parables. He was not the inventor of this method of teaching. Parables were used long before Jesus ministered in the first century. In fact, the Old Testament contains some parables, the the most well-known being the parable that the prophet Nathan told King David when King David took Uriah's wife Bathsheba as, as his own and made sure that Uriah died on the battlefield, Nathan came to him, the prophet, and gave him a, a parabolic story about, about someone who owned just one little lamb, and yet this little lamb was taken from him. And eventually it was Nathan who said to David, get this, you are the man, you did this. But that was a parable. That was a parable. He made a, a, a moral point by a very earthly story. So parables are even in the Old Testament and It was very common for the Jewish rabbis of that day to teach in parables. So the people of Christ's day were very familiar with this particular teaching technique. So they didn't consider Jesus speaking in parables to be something strange or or unusual or out of the ordinary. However, I want you to know, though, Jesus was not the first teacher to use parables. He certainly was the most effective teacher of parables, because he brought this style of teaching to its highest level, since he was the master at using the common, ordinary occurrences of everyday living to communicate the most profound spiritual truths. Nobody has ever spoken in parables like Jesus. In fact, as I told you, that many rabbis, it was common for the rabbis to speak in parables, and yet nobody remembers their parables. Nobody knows about their parables, yet some of the most memorable teaching by Jesus was presented in parables, such as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most people know of that parable and the parable of the prodigal son who, who came home and his father forgave him. I mean, that, that, those are well-known parables. Jesus took parables to its highest level. Now, the New Testament contains about 27 of Christ's parables. And I say about and not for sure 27 because some of the parables are so similar that they they just may very well be different versions of the same parable. So there are about 27 
parables, and yet seven of them are found in this one chapter, Matthew 13. Now, why did Matthew include so many parables in this one chapter, and why now? I mean, we have studied, if you've been with us from the beginning of our studying in Matthew, we have covered 12 chapters of this book. The book only goes up to 28 chapters. We've studied 12 chapters, and, and we've not encountered one parable. You've not even seen the word parable in the Gospel of Matthew, but now there are seven. And the question is, why? Well, the one thing that each of these parables in Matthew 13 has in common is that they all share a common theme. There is a design, there is a strategy, there is the Spirit of God inspiring Matthew who has a definite message here. There is a reason why they are here. Notice verses 10 and 11. It will begin to dig a little bit. This is foundational. I would encourage you to take notes on this. The disciples, it says in verse 10, came and said to him, why do you speak to them, the them being unbelievers, in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, note this. Our Lord's disciples come and ask him a question. Why are you teaching the masses of unbelievers in parables when they really can't understand what you're talking about? And in Christ's answer, he, he specifically referred to these parables as the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that tells us something of their theme. Let me explain. What did he mean by this expression? Well, first of all, the term mysteries in the Bible refers not to something that is mysterious, that you can't figure out, but it means a divine secret that has been hidden in the heart and mind of God during Old Testament times, but is now revealed in the New Testament. In other words, a mystery is a sacred secret previously unknown to to Old Testament believers, but now God has revealed it to New Testament era believers. That's exactly how Paul defined a mystery in Colossians 1.26. I want you to see this so you'll know that, that some theologian in the back room didn't invent this. This is taken from the Word of God. In Colossians 1.26, Paul, speaking about the church and how unique the church is as the body of Christ, says that is the mystery which has been hidden. Notice that he says hidden from the past ages and generations. So a mystery is something that God hid, meaning he did not reveal it in past generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. Exactly what I said a mystery is. It's something that has been hidden in the heart and mind of God, not revealed to Old Testament believers under the Old Covenant, but now it has been revealed to New Testament era believers under the New Covenant. So whatever the parables of Matthew 13 are about, we know at this point that they are covering information that was unknown to Old Testament believers because they are referred to as mysteries. So what are they about? What is the content? Well, we aren't left in the dark to figure out what the mysteries are about because Jesus specifically referred to the parables of Matthew 13 as the mysteries, he said, of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, each of these parables revealed certain previously unknown truths about God's kingdom. That's why, and I want to show you this, that's why Jesus introduced most of these parables by stating something like this. 
the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Let me show you this. Verse 24, Jesus presented, says another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Verse 31, he presents in another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Verse 33, He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Notice that he's making comparisons. Verse 44, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. That's the pearl of great price we sung about. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea. So notice there is a reoccurring phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then Jesus gave a very earthly type of story. So each of these parables is just a comparison. It explains what the kingdom of heaven is like. But you may wonder, in what way is God's kingdom a mystery? Didn't the Old Testament speak of God's kingdom many times? How could it be a mystery? How could it be something new? Well, the answer is yes, God did speak about his kingdom in the Old Testament. It is one of the major themes in the Old Testament scriptures. However, listen very carefully. While the Old Testament often spoke about God being king over his people and promised, the Old Testament promised uh, an earthly kingdom with the Messiah physically reigning in Jerusalem. Watch this. It never, ever spoke about what the kingdom would be like between the first and second comings of Christ. That is just not mentioned in the Old Testament. In other words, nowhere in the Old Testament did God ever speak about this unique time period, which is commonly known as the church age, in which his kingdom would exist in the hearts of his people while the king was physically absent from them. Yes, the Old Testament spoke about a literal kingdom coming, a physical kingdom on earth, but it it never spoke about what we would call this interim time period known as the church age in which the kingdom still exists, but it exists in the hearts of God's people. It never spoke about that, this interim period between his his rejection and his return. That's exactly, though, what these parables reveal. They tell us about unique truths, important truths, about this unique period of time that we are living in right now, a time when Christ is reigning over us in his kingdom, yet he is, in reality, a king who is in exile. He is not here in a physical sense. Now, let me explain a little bit further. The Old Testament gave us many messianic prophecies. It spoke about Christ coming to earth, about Christ being rejected, about Christ returning then to establish his kingdom on earth, But the Old Testament, as I said, and I want to reiterate this, it never spoke about this unique interim period between his rejection and his return. This time in which Jesus said he will build his church. The church age is a mystery. Wasn't spoken of in the Old Testament. Wasn't revealed by the prophets. This is why the Apostle Paul, not only in Colossians 1, but why in Ephesians 3, Paul spoke to Gentiles about being in the same body with Jewish people. The Old Testament spoke of Israel, but Israel is distinct from the church. And Paul noted this. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason, 
I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, so he's speaking to the Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me, notice this, the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Paul says, I'm going to tell you Gentiles a mystery. I've told you a little bit before about it. Now I'm going to tell you more. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight. He calls it into the mystery of Christ. And then he explains what it is, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. In other words, the Old Testament prophets didn't know of this, but the apostles know of it. The New Testament era prophets know of it. It's new revelation. And now he explains it in verse six to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, meaning the body of Christ, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Folks, that was never spoken of in the Old Testament. The Old Testament said that Gentiles would be saved, but it never spoke about this unique body called the body of Christ in which we are united with one another as Jew and Gentile believers in the church. Never spoke of that. This is distinct. This is unique. But that is precisely what the parables of Matthew 13 are about. They tell us about this distinct form of Christ's kingdom. And it is distinct. Right now, in which our king rules over our hearts, even though he is no longer physically present with us, because as I said, he is a king in exile until he returns. So the parables are designed to help us understand some critical truths about life during this church age, a unique time. A unique time when our invisible king is reigning over us while we await his visible return. And that is precisely why Matthew strategically presents these parables in chapter 13 of his gospel account. He knows exactly what he's doing. Now, let me, let me take you further. You will recall that Matthew chapters 11 and 12 have a unique theme. They are about the Jewish people rejecting Jesus. They are about negativity and unbelief. In chapter 12, Matthew has just told us that the Jewish religious leaders representing the nation of Israel had officially rejected Jesus. They saw him do miracles and they made their decision. They made a conclusion. They said he is demonic. He is not casting out demons because he is the Messiah. He is casting out demons, they said, because he is in league with Satan. He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which is satanic, which is the devil himself. That was their conclusion. And Jesus said to them that their hearts were so hardened that they had made a final decision about him. It was irreversible. That's why he said you will never be forgiven you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is that final rejection of Christ. You have all of this enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. And once you, you say that that's your conclusion, you are telling me that you have made your final decision. You will never repent. You will never believe on me. And you will be judged. And that's, that's why he concluded this chapter by telling them that on the day of judgment, believing Gentiles, the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, will rise up and charge them with rejecting Christ. While they repented, Jesus said, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And the queen of Sheba was enthralled with the wisdom of Solomon, yet they had the truth standing in their midst, someone far greater than Jonah, 
someone far greater than Solomon, and yet they will say, how could you have rejected him? How could you have rejected him? You will be judged. So chapter 12 closes by telling us that the nation of Israel has made their decision. They have essentially rejected their Messiah. And though there were some individuals who were his followers, and some could still become his followers, because as you recall, the last section of chapter 12, Jesus said, and who is my family? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? But those who believe in me. But the masses of Jewish people had made up their minds and they had rejected him as their king. Eventually, this rejection would result in his death. And then what? What would happen to the kingdom after he was crucified and then he returned to the Father in heaven? That is precisely what the parables deal with. What happens after? How does the kingdom advance? without the king being present. And so these parables tell us about specific truths concerning Christ's kingdom advancing during this present age. And the very first parable in this chapter is about a sower who cast his seed on various soils. It was given by the Lord to specifically explain this one issue. Why are there so few people during this kingdom church age that come to faith in him. Why are there so few people, even though the gospel goes forth like it's never gone forth before, why are there so few people who accept him? In other words, Jesus explains how his kingdom advances while he's away with only a small minority coming to him. And the parable also tells us that there are many who appear to be Christians at first, but they are not. They are not. This is a very important parable, and we're just going to begin to look at it this week. Then we'll see the interpretation of it, Lord willing, next week. Very important for us to to understand because it helps us to understand why there are so many people today who seem to start off well. They seem to have accepted Christ, but eventually they fall away. And that's troubled some of us. We all have friends and loved ones who at one time claimed to know Christ, even appeared to love him, may have been very active in a church fellowship, but now they want absolutely nothing to do with the Lord. In fact, some of them have gone into apostate religious organizations. They don't want to speak to you about Christ. They don't want you talking to them. What's going on? What is it? Where are they? Where are their hearts? Were they, were they Christians who, who, who lost their salvation, as some tell us? Are all of them just backslidden? where they really are believers, but they're just, as some would say, just carnal? What happened to them? Were they people who were not converted in the first place, but only looked like they were? Well, this very first parable will explain the reason for all of these empty professions of faith that do not bear godly fruit. It certainly is discouraging to see new professing converts to Christ drift away after a short time. This first parable of the sower, the seed, and the soil holds the key to understanding the other parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. Be sure to tune in to the next program. Verse by Verse is happy to announce a newly published book, Timeless Truths from a Faithful Shepherd. It is being offered to all our faithful listeners. This is a 207-page paperback book containing landmark sermons delivered by Pastor Steve Kreloff over the last 30 years. It is a great resource of information on topics like the life of Elijah, Esther, the Beatitudes, running the spiritual marathon, how to find God's peace, and much more. 
This book can be yours for a contribution this month of any size to Verse by Verse Ministries. Request the book when you send your contribution to Verse by Verse Ministries, P.O. Box 5884, Clearwater, Florida, 33758. You may also call and request the book. The phone number is 727-239-0306. You can contribute online at our website, versebyverseradio.org. Just click on the Support Us tab. So write or call for your copy of the book, Timeless Truths from a Faithful Shepherd, available for a contribution of any size during this month. You'll find it a great help in your spiritual journey. Thank you for joining our class today. This is the first of three parts of Pastor Steve's original sermon. To listen to this study again, go to our website, versebyverseradio.org, where you can stream it or download it for future reference. Click on Message Archive and then Sort by Date. The website again is versebyverseradio, all one word, dot org. If you would like to talk to someone concerning your own relationship to Jesus Christ, please call us at 727-239-0306. We would love to talk and pray with you. You may also email us at contact at versebyverseradio.org. If you have any questions, please contact us. That phone number again is 727-239-0306. I'm your announcer, Jerry Pruden. See you next time on Verse by Verse. Lord came call from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way. But now I know. Question. In your defining moment, does God know? Faith Talk 570 and 910 WTB. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.